it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 104. Happy second anniversary, Jake. Yeah, this is our uh, episode. If that's so, it was just, we turned two, basically. In a way, yeah. Well, episode 52, we celebrated the the end of year one of Cinema Sideshow. Mm. Now we're celebrating the end of year number two. Yeah. I think we and called them seasons, exciting. didn't we? Season yeah, one, season two. seasons. So we'll move into season three next week. I like um, the sound of that. But... It is award season, Jake, and we yeah. will be giving out some great awards and some not-so-great awards later <laughs> in the show. Yeah, well, exactly. We'll get into that later in the show, but if you've listened to our Inside Lewin Davis podcast a year ago, mm. almost exactly, then uh, you will know exactly what our awards consist of, but you're right, we'll get into that soon enough. Zeke, yes, I have a quote for you. Wowzers. Wowzers. Now, you've done pretty well so far. You're 3-0. Four. So, Let's keep uh, the streak going. Yeah, I like that. Free nil or free all? No, free all is it all is of, a draw. You, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Yeah, cool, perfect. And I think I think you're probably going to get this one. I need to start going harder on you, but I just can't resist some of these films because they're just so quotable. But are you ready for your next quote? I am ready for my next quote. All right, from 2004 film for episode 104. <clears throat> Discovered by the Germans in 1904, they named it San Diego, which of course is in German, means a whale's vagina. That would be the <laughs> 2004 Will Ferrell film, Anchorman. Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. That's yes. correct. Adam McKay's Adam's film. It feels weird saying that now. It does feel weird, <laughs> but it's one of my favourite films too. So yeah, And I'm one of the, the religious defenders of the second film. Yeah, you, you can stay in that lane if you want. I'll <laughs> stay in my lane, but uh, I'll keep quoting the first film. <laughs> no worries. Well, obviously, uh, we still have to do what we've caught in the last week, mm. and um, I've caught quite a few films. Um, I don't know about you, Jake. What have you caught in the last week? Uh, I haven't caught much because I've been <clears throat> trying to do... I don't do New Year's resolutions, Zeke, but I have been sort of keeping busy. Mm-hmm. As as most people do in January, I think people want to get busy, they start working yeah, they out get motivated. Yeah, and usually it lasts not so long, depending on the person. But yeah. um, So with that in mind, I haven't actually seen a lot of movies. I've only seen two so far, um, mm. which on the completely different playing fields, but I'll run through them quickly. I finally saw American Graffiti, the uh, George okay. Lucas film, which predates Star Wars, of course. In mm-hmm. fact, this is the film that made him a millionaire and made him able to create Star Wars. And um, I really dug it. I thought it was great. Yeah, it's a good film. Yeah, I think... George Lucas as a director in this film is so he's so unrecognizable mm. because he feels shockingly in touch with the youth in this film. And for those who don't know anything about American Graffiti, it's pretty much an homage to sixties teen life and it takes place over one night for these various teens who are, you know, leaving high school, going to uni. But um I love the style of it. It's very energetic. Everyone's got their flashy cars and you know, everyone's having conversations from car to car as they're driving down the street. Just like that that vibe, that mm. atmosphere, which it feels a little silly pointing out like, oh, we don't really have that today. We're all on our phones and messaging. It feels silly pointing it out, but it is, you know, this film is created through a nostalgic lens because it was made in 1973. So about, you know, 10, 11 years after where it takes place. But I really dug all that aspect. I dug the fact that it felt more like the Wild West of the teens. Well, I think a lot of teen films after this... Mm-hmm a more anti-authoritarian. You look at like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Breakfast Club, it's all about sticking it to the man. This one, there's a little bit of that. You know, they kind of prank the cops at one point. But other than that, there's it's mostly just the teens doing their own thing. Yeah. And I, I really dug it. It reminded me a bit of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 
because it is, you know, the nostalgic look at the 60s, the snippet of, you know, slice of life sort of thing, but the soundtrack as well. You got some Johnny B. Good, all that jazz. It's it's a great soundtrack. And shout out to the THX 138 license plate. I, I noticed that. <laughs> um, all right, well, do you want me to bounce it to you, Zeke? Yeah, so I've caught, um, actually, since the start of the year, have caught uh, 10 films in which two of them I won't be addressing Mm, at this point in time because they may be coming up in upcoming weeks on the show but I've managed to catch eight other films in which six of them just looking at it are Australian films Um, so I was feeling a bit patriotic I don't know why (laughs) fair enough Um, I'm going to start with the two that aren't Australian and we'll lead into that so I managed to catch a uh, kind of a Disney produced sports film Um, they do have a tendency particularly in the Late 90s, early 2000s, there was quite a stream of um, Disney-produced sports films, mostly to do with um, sort of racism in sport and uh, also just, they were, that was just, they seemed to make a lot of them. I mean, most people know of, remember the Titans, you know, such like this. And I managed to catch this one I've never seen before, Glory Road. And I, it was a film directed by James Gartner. I don't think it, it's the only film he's directed, um, okay, interesting. And which is actually kind of a common recurring theme with a lot of the films I watched this week. Um, I was pretty positive on it. I liked it. It had that mm. kind of grungy style that Coach Carter and, and Remember the Titans have. Yeah. I think both those films were a little bit more potent for me and I enjoyed okay. them just a little bit more, but still enjoyable. I'm a sucker for a sports film. Um, the other film I managed to catch was the second directorial feature film by Ed Norton. Um, oh, okay. Oh, um, Mother's Brooklyn? Yes. Right, interesting. Um, I was not very positive on this film. No. Uh, did this get panned critically? It did. Okay, because I don't remember it being... I remember when it came out pretty vividly. I never caught it, but... Well, it was a pretty strong cast. Like, you know, Ed Norton, Bruce Willis, Alec Baldwin, Willem Dafoe. You He's know. got a lot of friends. Yeah. <laughs> and you could tell they're probably just mates of him because this film is long-winded, confusing. Um, Ed Norton's main... His central character has a speech impediment and right. some form of uh, brain injury. And it's definitely feels like a, it's sort of like a look. Remember how, you know, how amazing Ed Norton's character work is, except this one... Isn't uh, isn't in the same league as some of the other uh, okay. roles that we've seen him pull off. It's kind of um, reminds me of um, Amy Adams in in the new Ron Howard film where she's she's great, literally but just not in that film. Yeah, it's gotcha. it's pretty much the exact same, mate. Um, I'm not a fan of this film. It's two and a half hours, and it was a slog. Like, oh, geez, so two and a half hours. That's yeah. the thing. When you see two and a half hours, you're like, "Boy, I better be entertained for this." Right. After about twenty minutes, I was ready to clock out of this film. So, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, would not recommend that. Uh, the other films I caught were all Australian films, like I said. Uh, starting with ones I felt less positive about: a directorial debut from uh, Lucy Coleman, 2017 film "Hot Mess." Uh, just kind of an adult comedy centered around a, a playwright who's, you know, sort of not got any relationship game. And to be honest, I talked about a couple of weeks on the show, another directorial debut that had a very similar sort of through line plot, which was 40 year old version, but oh, yeah. was drastically more complex, entertaining, and its characters were just 
all round. Yeah. You know, and I might be talking a little bit about that later on in the show. Mm, a little teaser but for you. this film, unfortunately, just had nothing. The camera work was, unfortunately, uh, a little disappointing. Um, it was quite flat. Mm. And I found the comedy was just sort of kind of what... It, it's kind of what, like, uh, teenagers think adult comedy is, which I think that's the difference. It was very... It was just a lot of saying really big curse words and such, but lacking mm. the substance and the entertainment side. So I was left kind of shrugging my shoulders. Right. It kind of reminds me a bit of um, when I was watching The Naked Wanderer. It was one with the, in terms of the comedy, I was mm. like, I can't tell if this is written by a 15 year old or an 80 year old. Yeah. And I think it leaned towards the older side, but you're right. It was it's such a disconnect comedically wise. Yeah. Um, another film I managed to catch, uh, I, so I actually caught. Um, three films from director Robert Connolly this week, um, who is actually quite a, uh, you know, he's done quite a bit of work in Australian films. One of them I won't be able to talk about because we might be doing it later on in the show, but mm. um, I actually managed to catch his previous film, Paper Planes, which was a, was, okay. was a kid's film that starred uh, Sam Worthington and stuff. I thought it was fine. I thought uh, it was... Even from, a, like, when you try and put your kids' glasses on, you know, this film's marketed for children, it's a children's right. film. It just did nothing for me. I think the, the plot was a little bit convoluted and confusing and, and it just didn't find myself too entertained by it. But maybe that might be my age showing. <laughs> so Yeah. Well, it's it's tricky with um, if a film is so obviously dedicated <clears throat> to kids. Excuse me, I've got something in my throat. Um, there can be a disconnect, and sometimes it just doesn't work for adults, like at all. Yeah. Um, another one I caught was Boytown, which was a bunch of uh, middle-aged men who trying to recapture their Boytown success of the 80s, which is oh, okay. actually a relatively entertaining film that starred Glenn Robbins, Mick Malloy, Bob Franklin. Basically, this cast were the people they would always have on Thank God You're Here back in the day. And this film came out around Thank God You're Here. What a classic. And it's funny. Like, they're just funny people. But yeah. uh, the plot was silly and I, I was just more entertained by how funny they are. I mean, most of them right, yeah. appear now. I say Thank God You're Here, but now they mostly all appear on Have You Been Paying Attention? Which Never is, even heard of that. Yeah, it's like it's kind of like Good Newsweek. Okay. Um sort of a similar show, but it's on Channel 10. Interesting. Um, okay. Very localised conversation point there. <laughs> but um, that was a that was a reasonably entertaining film. And the only other... I've got three others here, but I'll throw it back to you for your second film. Yeah, you okay. No worries. Um, well, the only other one I saw, um, my first theatrical experience of 2020... Uh, sorry, 2021. Oh, I'm Ooh. already getting thrown off. Uh, I watched Promising Young Woman, which we actually got a while back... With this, I remember reading this on the next week in cinema section pre-COVID, mm. so almost a year ago. And I remember us thinking like, eh, it didn't, didn't sound great, like it was a bit off. But I've come to realize how much of a critical darling it is, and I think it did big at Sundance. I was like, okay, mm. maybe there's something we're missing. And um, well, I walked out. Of, I walked out of the cinema Zeke, and I was like, I there's a lot to unpack with this film. Fascinating film. I mostly. Think it's excellent. It's pretty excellent. So the premise that the trailer will tell you about, because again, it's sort of in the same realm as Parasite or Kajillionaire, where you don't want to know what the film's really about. Mm -hmm. You kind of want to go in and let the plot just sort of drive you. 
and it's really great at doing that and it's even great at tricking the audience there's a text message towards the end that is literally just them laughing at you being like you're silly you thought the plot was gonna go this way which i thought was a bit tongue-in-cheek but um what they would tell you the plot is is basically casey mulligan's character she sort of sets herself up as this drunk girl at nightclubs to sort of lure in mm-hmm. predatorial men and uh, it gets a little uh, muddy what happens from there. And I obviously don't want to spoil anything. I think you absolutely should watch this film and enjoy it for the plot that unfolds. But um, I had a lot of fun with it. I, I did have some nitpicky complaints. I thought stylistically it was a little inconsistent. Like I kind of enjoyed it at the start. They sort of had this sort of a, a teenage girl's diary sort of graphic effect going on. They sort of drop it pretty early, mm-hmm. which I was like, oh, why don't you keep it sort of... In fact, there's actually more like text logos throughout that are like like the text itself is like stained steel or something, and I didn't really get why they changed the style of that. The narrative was a little messy. It wasn't like very finessed or very uh, elegant. Like mm-hmm. some of the things maybe could have happened in a more elegant way, but it all comes together at the end. And you, you think about the whole package or story, and you're like, it was pretty pretty insane what happens. And considering first time director uh, Emerald F- uh, Fenning, F E N N E L, I believe. Um, pretty excellent because I compared it to like Jojo Rabbit. It's very hard to balance humor and serious tones, and Taika can do it because he's a very experienced director. Um, so for a first-time direction, I actually thought the film did pretty well, all things considered. And a great cast: Casey Mulligan, she's excellent. Uh, she plays obviously the lead actress, but she, you kind of get the sense that she's stunted by trauma, and you kind of learn why throughout. Uh, and just some of the other cast in it, which I didn't even realize. So every five minutes, I was like, oh, this person's in it. So Alison Brie is in it. Bo Burnham is in it. Clancy Brown's in it. Uh, Christopher Mintz uh, Plaz, is that his name? The guy from Superbad. Uh, and Alfred Molina, who wasn't even credited, which I thought was so strange. Like he, has, he has a prominent role in the film and he's not even in the credits. So, um, But Promising Young Woman, check it out. It's great. Um, we should do it later this year, I reckon, at some point on the show. Interesting. Well, the only other films I caught this week was the 2019 film Measure for Measure, which is a modern-day retelling of a Shakespeare play. Mm. Um, not 100% sure which one, but that's what it says in its logline. Um, <laughs> it's directed by it's the second feature from Paul Island. Um, and from reading about his first film and this film, he definitely focuses on sort of the multicultural flats that are located in Melbourne's western suburbs, mm. so sort of the lower economic area. Uh, stars Hugo Weaving, um, and it was, yeah, it was a reasonably entertaining film. Um, I didn't have too much positive nor negative to say about it. I just okay. found it quite consumable. It only has a 100-minute runtime, and it, you know, it fills it pretty well. I actually found it really interesting. Okay. Um, the only other two films I caught this week, which were in succession of one another... And both recently added to Netflix was the 2018 uh, film by Mark Grentel, The Merger, which is a sort of Australian caper comedy, and his first film, Backyard Ashes, which is a 2013 film. And I loved both these films. Okay, they were right in the vein of sort of the castle-esque comedy. Um, so if you're a fan of the castle, I think you'll love these films. Mm-hmm. I think particularly The Merger... Backyard Ashes was a bit more slapstick fun. It sort of follows like a backyard cricket um, ashes contest between POM neighbours and an Australian. And it's sort of a very uh, corporate versus the Australian dream, which is very okay. much more in vain with the castle sort of allegory. But the merger actually 
talks about um, the saving of a community football club in the middle mm. of rural Victoria when they have to seek the help of a lot of immigration uh, and asylum seekers that have been placed in the town, sort of, which is some of the programs we do around Australia. And obviously there's a lot of uh, you know, racism division between sort of the, the country Australia and, and sort of the you know, the immigration. And it actually has a lot of heart, this film, and has mm. some really good monologues and some great performances. Um, and I would a- absolutely recommend that as a watch. as a nice kind of quirky comedy film that mm. actually has a little bit more to say, which I found really impressive. Awesome. Yeah, a bit of Australian tear. Yeah, it was Ooh. weird. I don't know what started it. I think he did, actually. So both his films I found quite entertaining. Both are on reasonably small budgets, too. And some t- okay. very rarely does it show that that sort of budgetary restriction. But um, so what he does, how he manages to spread that money was um, really impressive, to be honest. Nice. Yeah, you and always was- wanted to come up on the screen. Like, whatever money they have, you wanted to... to, to- that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, to I show, think he only had about five, six hundred grand for both, so okay, not not too bad effort at all. Yeah. Um, I find the backyard ashes one is a bit, like I said, a bit more slapstick, but a bit more funny. Um, but that being said, there's some really nice, like if you're an Australian or you grew up, you know, on Australian television, there's some nice Easter eggs because there's some actors. Okay. Like the main character in Backyard Ashes is the dad from Round the Twist. Nice. Which you know, if you know, so if you're in Australia, I think they're films that award you for being Australian. I don't know if they would be very successful internationally, but being an Australian okay. person, you would find these films. It's sort of what the way the castle sits, really. I mean, I don't imagine many people overseas watching that film and really understanding some of the the in sort of the inside comedy. Right, um, little too little too specific. What sort of the same effects some early Taika Waititi films had? They're very New Zealand orientated, and I think some right. of that humour's lost on people. Maybe, yeah. I, I mean, he he definitely found success wider, and it's hard for us to be like, well, we enjoy it because it's like we our humour isn't too different mm-hmm. um, as Australians. But uh, I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. It might be too specific for. Well, even if you audiences. look at things like Thor Ragnarok, though, there are jokes that are directly like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this region and would go because I've actually that film's really funny because I know a lot of Australians and New Zealand people love that film, but that's some of like for America that's like one of their least favorite films. Is that? Oh, I've heard quite a few people just huh? didn't get it. Oh, fair enough. I didn't think the humor was like that invasive that it would ruin the whole film if you no, didn't get the jokes. No, but I, I don't think they hate her, but I think it's just not as high on their list because oh, okay, yeah, people put Ragnarok. Near the top, top there, top top five, top three, yeah. sort of. Yeah, no, I gotcha. I I would love to rewatch for Ragnarok because I I wasn't huge on it. I think I was in a really bad mood the one time I watched it, but um, I didn't think it was like top three sort of. Mm. But yeah, I'm happy to rewatch it. No worries. Cool. Well, so that's that's t- it. That's it for me. So <laughs> unbelievable. You should have watched more Z. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it's time to move into our. Uh, do you have any career updates before we move into the big awards? Oh, I was I was going to do the. I guess I can do them now. I was going to do them after the awards. I'll get oh. them out of the way, I guess. We'll get them out of the way and we'll lead into the second half of the show. Cool. Well, like I said, I've been fairly busy. The thing I'll throw at the front, because it re- reflects both of us, is uh, our competition winner from episode 100, Nikisha Moody, uh, just received her two Blu-ray picks. Congrats. What were they? Uh, so she picked Spirited Away and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. 
uh, and we made we made the extra effort to get the Criterion Collection Blu-ray of Portrait because it's very hard to get the, that film on Blu-ray. Did you get one yourself? I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to buy a new Blu-ray player to actually play it. Will we be hearing Portrait <laughs> come up later in your awards? Um, I'm going to keep my mouth shut on that Whoa. one. No. But um, so we did that. So congratulations once again, Nikisha. We might have another competition at some point in the show. We mm. shall see. Uh, and one of the other things I want to talk about quickly obviously fringe is coming up very soon yes um for us here in, in wa and uh a little video from so the the stage show that's going to be playing i think from the 8th to the 10th of february 8 to 12th i can't remember you got to double check but it's called uh shit we like to sing and there's a little asterisk over the t there um but i was assisting the other week i assisted on a little promo video so that promo video is out now so if you go on their mm-hmm. facebook page i think they're broken crown productions i think that's their facebook page um the video's up so um that's cool and also i got my drone repaired zeke it's official oh so you're gonna do more soaring saturdays oh later in the year we'll get a season two of soaring saturdays lovely dun, dun, lovely dun. Uh, but yeah Cool. That's uh, all I got for this week, Zeke. No worries. Well, it is time to move into our second Cinema Sideshow Anniversary Awards. Oh, exciting. Now, Jake, it has been a year of some amazing films. However, there have been a couple of lemons, shall we say. <laughs> lemons. Well, I'll, I'll quickly explain for those who, don't, who may have not heard the Inside Lewin Davis episode, I could explain how this works. So, for the... We have uh, two awards. We're introducing a third one at mm-hmm. the end, but for the two, we have the Stale Popcorn Award, which consists of us each giving our personal countdowns of the films that we weren't huge fans of mm-hmm. from the past year, and this can only be films that we've uh, reviewed, or like the main title of the week. Film of the week. Exactly. Film of the week episode. Uh, so we count down our personal picks, three, two, one, and then we both uh, synonymously pick the one that is best representative of the last year of the show as our least favourite film. And I'll quickly run through last year's results, Zeke. There's a little refresher. So for the Sale Popcorn Award last year, Zeke, uh, for number three, you picked Don John, and I picked The Other Side of the Wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I want to clarify, these don't mean this doesn't mean that we hate all of these films. It just means the, uh, the relation that we have with these films and our podcasts. So maybe... Uh, you know, the other side of the wind was sort of, it maybe it was a forgettable film, and that's why I put it at the end of that list. Uh, for number two, we both gave it to It Chapter Two, which we both really, weren't really huge fans of. And number one, you gave it to Captain Marvel. I gave it to Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. And the Stale Popcorn Award winner went to The Lion King. Mm. Dun, dun, dun. Which I did not like that film, and I'm happy to say that on the record. <laughs> All right, well, with that in mind, do we want to jump into this year's Stale Popcorn Awards? Yeah, so I'm not going to lie, compared to last year's awards, Jake, this was actually a much tougher year to pick Mm. four films, I guess, that I really disliked. To be honest, I could probably only peg two films that I was not a big fan of from our Film of the Week section. I kind of agree. I I had a tougher time because I think we just generally watched more films that we liked in the past year. Yeah, and I think there might be a couple of changes that we had on the show this year. We tried some different things like our countdown through the deck mm. retrospective, which I'm sure some of those films we're going to mention a little later on. Right. Um, but yeah, I was really happy. I think up until um, when I really sat down and looked at the 52 episodes we did in the last year... I was impressed how many of them were ranging from, you know, seldom positive to 
we loved them. They were masterpieces. Right. So um, I'm glad that we now have a third category, which we'll talk about a little later on. Um, my number three, or finishing fourth in terms of... So my number three nomination for the Stale Popcorn Award yeah. is uh, The Devil All the Time. Ooh, interesting uh, choice. Okay, fair enough. Now, this is a prime example of a film that we both actually were relatively positive on and I had a mm. look at my my ratings of the fifty two episodes we'd done right. in on Letterbox and I didn't give many poor grades. Um so unfortunately Devil All Time just gets in that third seed simply because um I just didn't have any other choices in yeah. my opinion looking at what we we did. No, I think it's a fair choice. And like you said, it's number three, so it's sort of it barely makes the cut yeah. of the stale popcorn. In fact, I was actually, I, I think out of the two of us, I was the more positive on this film um, yeah. in terms of its, uh, I really liked some of its performances. I think the pacing was one of our biggest weaknesses of the, in if I consider it, our review. It's funny because I was at a party last night and it, it seems pretty weird, but someone literally asked me last night, what did you think of the devil all the time? I think we've just gone through films in the last year. Mm. And my my go to is it's fine, but I always felt it was a bit contrived, like the mm-hmm. way that the events play out, and this person kills this person, and this person kills this person. It's just there's so much misery and pain, like squished mm. into this time frame. Yeah. And if the film was just the first thirty minutes, it would have been brilliant. The first thirty minutes of this film is amazing. Mm. The way it tells that story and the dangers of religious uh, beliefs and obsession, and but it takes the story further to more generations, and you need that part of the story, but I thought it was unnecessary. So I, I think that's a fine choice. Yeah, no worries. What about you? What's your number three? My number three is Ammonite. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, that's, that's a fair one. It's kind of a very similar to your pick in that I didn't hate the film. I thought it was okay. But I think in the realm of having just seen it after Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which I think is one of the greatest films really ever... It it really fails in comparison. We talked about it on the show. We didn't think the chemistry between the two lead actresses was that incredible strong, mm. considering individually they're both incredible. Yeah, but um, it's probably the weakest Saoirse Ronan performance I've seen, mm. at least in the last. She five gets nothing years. to do. Yeah, so I, that's why it ends up third in mine. It was okay, but um, definitely one of it was a disappointment to yeah, say the least. Of course. Um, so my number two mm. is. The Sofia Coppola 2019 film On the Rocks. Wow, okay. We are on a very different wavelength. I like this. Okay. I like um, this. So this film obviously kind of has a similar situation to um, your uh, portrait to Ammonite comparison. Mm-hmm. I think the previous episode we managed to watch The Virgin Suicides, which... Arguably, for me, is probably my favourite film she's done. Between that or Lost it in might Trans- be mine too. Lost in Translation, I'm very half and half of which one I prefer more. But I think if the longer I think about it, I feel like there's a lot more meat in Virgin Suicides in terms of what I could get out of it, and yep. maybe I just like the chemistry of of Scarlett Johansson and and Bill Murray in that film. Unfortunately, I think we thought this film was fine at best mm. but we kind of walked away with it being like what really was the point we sort of picked a part of it a lot yeah like the stuff with rashida jones and the husband character and uh, there was just a lot of stuff that we were like but what about this why didn't this happen and the film yeah. does have a wildly uh, 
uh, rushed ending. Like the last ten minutes, it just wraps everything up. Right, S- silly, like absurdly quick. It's very um, unsatisfactory mm. or anticlimactic. That was the word I used. Yeah, and uh, and I agree. And this is this is what I love about these awards more so than just this was the worst film of the year. You talked specifically about how you this film your enjoyment was hindered because in relation to the podcast we reviewed another one of her films a week before. Yes. So this is exactly what these awards are all about in relation to the context of we review these films. This is why we put them where we put them. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah, I'm absolutely with you there. No worries. Uh, what about your number two, Jake? My number two is one we did very, very recently, Wonder Woman 1984. Uh, this is my number two. Uh, we talked about this last week in great detail, but it's one of those films that... The more I thought about it, and I hate to do this, I hate watching reviews and having them affect my opinion, but I didn't watch a single review of Wonder Woman and it made me like it more. Typically, I just ended up liking it less because just the the absurdism, the ridiculousness of what happens in that film, I never came to like it. I never came to accept that that what it was trying to be. I don't know. It just it seemed like a big waste of time and two and a half hours. It's a long time. Well, I think we are on a similar wavelength because my runner-up for the Stale Popcorn Award is Wonder Woman mm. 1984. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm just I'm with you on the same page here, bud. I think this film was absurdly long. Uh, I mean, if you want, you literally can go to last week. We did it last yeah, week. It last listen week's to episode. listen to the review, and I honestly thought there were only two films that I really thoroughly disliked this year in terms of our films of the week and this was the second of those two um right and uh i there have been films that we went and saw that we, i was left a little disappointed ammonite's a great example tenants yep. another great example mm. um but at least i can pick parts of those films that i really did like a lot okay um enough to just keep it out of this sort but you of- didn't straight up hate the experience exactly um and unfortunately i can't do that with wonder woman which is my runner-up for the star popcorn award fair enough um well my number one you just mentioned it which i thought was funny my number one is tenant Mm. Uh, so that's my number one personal stale popcorn award and the reason for like you said there's things to like about it and it is crazy to be so negative on a christopher nolan film but there was so much again it's the context the fact that in within the realms of our show, within the realms of cinema around the mm-hmm. world, that this was meant to be the film to save it. And I just, I was so annoyed by how intentionally frustrating the film is and confusing. I was annoyed that the character motivation makes so little sense. I never really got a sense of what uh, John David Washington's character was all about. He's literally called the protagonist. Um, all of that stuff just sort of hindered my experience. I couldn't hear it. Now, I, I bought my brother the 4K version for um, Christmas because I know he's into 4K collecting. Mm-hmm. I'd love to watch it on that with subtitles. I would. But uh, the reason this is my number one is because of just how immensely disappointed I was. I, cu- I was disappointed in Ammonite, but on the same token, I didn't think it was going to be incredible. I was disappointed in Wonder Woman, but I wasn't anticipating it like being better than the first, for example. But Tenet, I had really high hopes for, and and I just I was so disappointed by it. But you're right. There's things to like about it. There's great visuals mm-hmm. and the technology and how much of it's done in camera. That's all great Nolan stuff, but I think he just went way too far 
with just everything <laughs> with this film. Well, it is time, Jake, and I seem to recall we did do a nice little wah wow sound to meet the stale popcorn last year. Yeah, we'll, we'll do the same. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> we'll the same. Of course. But, Jake, what is the 2020 Stale Popcorn Award winner? The Stale Popcorn Award winner for 2020... Is it 2020? I guess it would be 2020. Yeah. This is all 2020 films. Um, is The Invisible Man. You are indeed correct. It is the mm. film by Lee Winnell. Lee Winnell's 2020 film, easily the most disappointed, I think, you and I walked out of a film this year mm. came from this experience. This was obviously just before... Um, this the was events. the last film we saw before COVID. Yeah, before uh, the events of COVID. Um, and a film that I think both of us were looking forward to. I think a lot of mm. people were looking forward to. A lot of hype to. for it, yeah. Um, we've all, up until this point, had seen his previous film, Upgrade, and thought it was great. Um, and this film does stuff that tonally makes no sense. Uh, where do you start with this film, Jack? Yeah, it's look, and I still retain. I think that first season, uh, first scene, sorry, is very great and very clever. But you're right; it falls apart. It it feels so much of it. Uh, I don't even want to say it just doesn't make sense. I mean, you can make arguments about the Invisible mm. Man himself and how a lot of his stuff doesn't make sense, and all those twists that happen don't make a lot of sense. Um, but I just thought it was such a bizarre film and I think a lot of people were really into it because it was, you know, a nice nifty horror film that had a lot of, you know, positive messages are going up against, you know, domestic abuse and stuff against women. But I I wasn't distracted by that message because so mm. much about the actual plotting of the film and the the characters it just didn't make any sense to me. I we were very disappointed <laughs> walking out of that. Yeah, I I too was uh, in the same boat. I think that story was convoluted. Um, characters had abilities that weren't motivated. I mean, if you go back to our review, we talk a lot about that stuff because we had digested it quite thoroughly. Yeah. Um, there are scenes of, of brilliance and there's some really nifty kind of CGI stuff, but there's also scenes that, Work, what worked in Upgrade, an action sci-fi film, doesn't work in a horror film. Exactly, um, yeah. In, unless, the hallway scene is so dumb. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm glad to see we're on the same page about that one. So congats to the Invisible Man for taking out the stale popcorn award for yeah, our... Congrats, uh, question mark. <laughs> um, no worries. Well, I guess, speaking cool. of 2020, Jake... Mm. We didn't appreciate in our first okay. rendition of this show the films that came out in the year that was 2019, I think. We talked a little bit about them, but obviously didn't get every opportunity to watch films that were coming out and hitting the cinemas yeah, or I the streaming platforms. I remember specifically because I listened back to it and that was actually a pre-record because mm -hmm. that episode was going to go up when you were travelling. And we were talking about how it was a pretty weak year for film, uh despite us not having seen films like uh, Parasite, Marriage Story, Uncut Gems, The Irishman. Like, these are all films that we hadn't seen at that point. Mm -hmm. So we're pretty negative on the year. But now, of course, we're filming this you know, within 24 hours of it coming out. It's very live. 2020 is mm -hmm. over. We can talk about all this film. So I, I like what you're doing here. Yeah. So um, to remedy this situation, we have introduced a 2020 Sideshow Appreciation Award 
in which we will do the exact same structure. This one, however, we don't have to have a unanimous decision for who takes us out. Jake will give his appreciation award to the 2020 film he caught, and I'll give mine to mine, respectively. This is films that did not have to be in the film of the week. They just had to be released in the last year. Um, yeah, so do you want me to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Beautiful. So my number three is The Half of It, which was a oh, 2020 release, which I found um, wildly entertaining. It's a rom-com with a little bit of complexity to it. It's a film that I didn't expect to enjoy as much as I did. It's directed by Alice Wu. And yeah, this is her second film. Um, her first film was back in 2004. So. <laughs> That's a bit of a hiatus from film. It's a Jaddy, J- Patty Jenkins level jump right there <laughs> in features. I think this film had a lot going for it. It had an, a nice, subtle LGBTQ story. It had a good cultural uh, story about a shy, uh, straight-A student, Ellie, who's of a um, Asian background, living in a very small Canadian town. It was quite interesting because, obviously, you have that um, sort of fish-out-of-waters portrayal on top of the lgbtq stuff on top of the romance stuff and it actually ended up being quite a thoroughly entertaining film that was a bit more softly spoken i thought mm. i'd give it a a a, th- a shout out because honestly in the last year we've watched some really great films mm. For even sure. given the current um cinema climate of the last year we managed to sneak in some really good films yeah well even in that example that's a netflix film correct yeah so there you go only could happen in this climate really Cool. Well, my uh, number three pick, of course, we're doing our top three and then, then our personal winners, mm-hmm. uh, is Love Bell Epicu. So this is a film I saw in cinemas maybe back in August, September-ish. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's... Uh, I could be wrong. I'm forgetting. It could be... A, I think it's a French film or it's a foreign language film. I know that. Yes. I had to read them subtitles, Zeke. Uh, so what this film is about, it actually reminds me a lot of... And I actually wrote this on Letterboxd. If you take the romanticism from... Um, oh god, what was the example? I was, there's the reality obsession or recreation obsession from mm-hmm. films like Truman Show, and um, God, what's the other one? I'm gonna have to pull out my letterbox. Oh, the uh, the romanticism romanticism was from Midnight in Paris. Mm-hmm. I think we had just reviewed that. It might actually be the same week that we did that. Was when I watched this film. Um, oh, and and Cinedoki New York was the other one. See, I didn't even have to pull out my phone. I did it all on my own. Um, but anyway, if you take the romanticism, romanticism from Midnight in Paris and take the reality recreation obsession from Cinedoke in New York and Truman Show, and you sort of mesh that together, you get this wonderfully like heartwarming story about a guy who's trying to relive the best moments of his life. So he applies for this service where they, they hire actors and construction site people and, and they recreate the event for you. So you give them as much detail as possible when mm. they recreate the moment. And, and this person sort of spirals into this uh nostalgic take at their own younger life mm. and i just thought it was a very magical film i was i was entranced by it Intriguing. so uh, yeah that's my number three pick what about you zeke no worries we'll throw it over to my number two um i won't be able to dive into it too much because it's actually mm. the the uh film we're doing a little later in the show Ooh. it is ma rainey's black Bottom. wow look at that um sneaking in so i won't talk about it too much here because you'll literally hear about it in 20 or so minutes. Um, Yeah, I enjoyed this film, but I'll dive into that one a little bit more later in the show. So I'll throw it straight back to you. I'm very happy to hear that. My number two, and this is something that we may or may not talk about soon either, 
Um, my number two was Nomadland. So this is a film starring Francis McDormand, my, the love of my life. I have a mm-hmm. lot of loves of life, see, mm-hmm. you may have noticed throughout the show. That I have. Um, and I think this is an excellent film. Like you, I'm not going to talk too much about it because our deeper conversation will come soon. But um, I thought it was really excellent. I, I didn't quite think it was the best film of the year that I've seen. But uh, there is sort of this, um, you know, the cinema verite behind it with the documentary style. And there's not a lot of actors in it, quote unquote. It's usually Francis Norman working with other people and making their performances believable and, and with real nomads. And it's such a wonderful tone. And, and the, I always listen to the music. I love the music so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's great. It's a great film. Yeah, I actually held off it on my list this year simply because it might make the list next year. Fair enough. Well, this is our 2020 appreciation, so yeah, I thought it was fair, fair enough. That is a fair call. Well, continuing on, I'm actually going to talk about the film that we talked about maybe only five or six minutes ago. It was the first film we caught when we were allowed to go back to the cinemas. Oh. It is Shirley. <laughs> now, obviously, unfortunately, The Invisible Man, also an Elizabeth Moss film, did take out our stale popcorn film, um, and she has become one of my favourite actresses of the last you know three four years wow um and she really shows it up in in this quartet of um amazing performances this is obviously a film that we caught like i said just when we managed it was the first to... film we saw in cinemas together after covid and so this would have been july-ish uh yeah yeah and it obviously stars uh elizabeth moss of dosa young michael stuhlberg and logan lerman are the four that I was talking about in that quartet of really impressive performances. Mm. This film was dizzying in terms of its uh, complexity and psychology, and it really was an intriguing film, obviously, directed by Josephine Decker and produced by Martin Scorsese. You can see why Scorsese produced this film. And that's her first film too, I think, her first feature. I think it's not. She did do Madeline Madeline... But oh, you're hers, right. I'm sorry. She's done a couple, but it is a very impressive film by her. Yeah. Um, and very focused and sort of dives into the psychological pressures of artists and, the, you know, the price for art. Mm. Um, but we were, I think we were both quite impressed with this film. Yeah. No, I, I dug it a lot and you might even hear me mention it later. There you go. Um, but yeah, you can catch that episode 78. So far, that is the only film we've mentioned in this appreciation award, other than the film we're talking about in a minute, uh, that we have done a podcast on. So listen to our Shirley podcast. Well, my nominated winner was also a film of the week. Oh, there you go. So. My, uh, I guess, number one before my final pick is Kajillionaire, Miranda July's film. So this is, we haven't reviewed it yet. I'm sure it's coming to Blu-ray soon because mm-hmm. I watched it a while ago now. Um, but Kajillionaire, I mentioned it when I was talking about Promising Young Woman. It's a fantastic film in terms of it takes you on all of these roads. You don't know what it's actually about. When you go into it thinking it's about, you know, this trio of a family, you know, this mum, dad, 26-year-old daughter who are sort of these con thieves and they're, they're always doing things, a penny pinch and steal people's mails and that just to make a living to get through life. And uh, it turns into, uh, I don't know how much everyone want to say this because I really love it, but... It, it turns into a much more deeper self-discovery and many a right of things, but I just thought the, the film was excellent. It is really excellent. People should absolutely watch this film. Yeah. No worries. So for my 2020 Sideshow Appreciation Award, I have nominated the Charlie Kaufman film, 
I'm Ooh. thinking of ending things. Wow. Number one. Look at that. Number one. So this is, uh, oh, this is what, his fourth or his fifth directorial film, Jake? Um, Maybe his fourth? Because obviously he wrote, I think the first film we directed was Cynodoke, New York, which I mentioned. A lot of bloody circling back, aren't we? Mentioning all the same it's films. his third. Oh, okay, that makes sense. And he did an animated one, I think. Amelisa. Amelisa, there you go. Um, yeah, I think, speaking of strong quartet films, I do think 2020 was the year of the quartet. Uh, Four-way performances. Bef- yes. <laughs> um, this was an amazing uh, quartet performance from Jesse Buckley, Jesse Plemons, Tony Collette, and David Thulis. Thulis. Uh, I always struggle with his surname. Lupin. Lupin from <laughs> Harry Potter. Lupin, yeah. um, obviously, any film with Tony Collette, that's an indie film, is generally a good film. That's a good... <laughs> I don't think she's in anything bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'd find something. But just speaking of actresses that I've absolutely fallen in love with and adore in their performances, and I can't wait until they get films like this one we're just about talking about, um, this was a great showcase for Jesse Buckley and even Jesse Plemons, who... Oh, uh, my God, yeah. Of um, course. Obviously, you know, the only other film that we talked about him this year was El Camino. That was this year. No, it was last year. That was last year. Man, it's We've, so... I mean, he's in a lot of seasons like Black Mask, and so he's in The Irishman. Oh, he's... He's a yeah. working actor, man. Yeah. and <laughs> But it's really nice to him to have, like, a more front front of stage sort okay. of spot where, he, you know, you talked about The Irishman. I mean, he's in The Irishman for, like, what, five, ten minutes? Like, he's not in it, like, excessively. Yeah, but I, I feel like people... He's a recognised okay. actor for well, sure. I loved this film. This film has... You want to talk about a film that has complexities that can incite conversations and from an academic and critical standpoint, I mm. think it's just an excellent film. And I think it's a film that pays you to re-watch it and give it close attention. Yeah, I'm sure I watched it twice before we did our podcast. Yeah. I think I did. Um, it's a very impressive film and I'm happy to be handing out my appreciation award to it. I like... Kaufman films, I think they're that's <laughs> at least the ones that are. I mean, that's the only one of the three I've actually watched that he's directed. I've really wanted to catch Amelisa because that one intrigues me. Yeah, I still think. I mean, I'm thinking of anything that was pretty damn abstract, but but Cinderdoke in New York is that's a wild film, man. You need a strap on for that one. I'm just gonna say that. <laughs> well, my winner, I guess, or my number one one for the 2020 Sideshow Appreciation Award goes to The Swallows of Kabul. So this is an animated film. It uh, takes place in, I think, 1998, or Taliban ruled Kabul. It focuses on two families and sort of how they struggle with the day-to-day life of it. Uh, and then there's one young couple where the, the, the woman is very artsy and likes mm-hmm. the pain and wants to teach at schools, but this is a society that won't quite let her do that. Um, and there's some twist with that family as well, but then there's the other family where they're much older and the wife is sickly, and he has to look after her, and the way these families in across, and it's just, it's really wonderful. And the animation, I described it as when I walked out of the theatre, I forgot what real life looked like. Like, And it's a very sharp, like, 80-minute wow. film, but the visual style really sticks with you. And the sound, the sound's incredible, which is a weird thing, but, like, I noticed, I was like, wow, this is, like, excellent sound. So, I don't, uh, it was, dare I say, I don't, see, it's tricky saying it's my favourite film of the year, Mm-hmm. But it's the highest rating I gave a 2020 film. Well, if you want to call it a 2020 yeah. film, it came out over here in 2020. <laughs> no worries. Well, congratulations. 
Um, so we're moving into our main event of the award evening. Um, there we go. Should have been should have been wearing tux for this. I think um, <laughs> we said you made that joke last year too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There you go. See, I'm uh, going to make it every year until we actually do it one year. Exactly. All right. Can I degrees. quickly read out the Golden Chock Top winners from last year? You most certainly can. Can you also give us a quick explanation of what the Golden Chock Top Award is, Jake? Of course. Well, it's it's in the same vein as the Stale Popcorn. We each give three of our individual picks leading up to one, and then we synonymously pick one film that we think best represents the last year of the Cinema Sideshow podcast. Uh, typically, we'll go to our favourite films collectively. We both have to love it equally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so last year, for example, once episode 26 won the Golden Chop Top, and I don't think either of us think it's the best film that we reviewed, but we both love it on such a personal level. Yeah. And that it kind of fits our groove with the podcast that it was our winner. Yeah, I think it's a, a, it's a mixture of um, obviously being, you know, critically quite a advanced and, and good film but at the same time it's the emotional attachment we have to the film and, exactly and the, the sort of the the provoked responses obviously once was by far one of probably the more lower budget films that we reviewed on that on that first year of the show it probably didn't yeah. have a very high budget and stuff but it wasn't it was the style and and the grounding and obviously the music composition the music, is one yeah. of the the strongest elements of it and it left us both walking away thinking it was one of our favorite films we've got to review on the show and this year is no different obviously that being considered we you know we watched a lot of really good classic films this year obviously because of our countdown through the retro uh, countdown through the decades retrospective polls mm. in which we went back and watched a film from every decade all the way up to the 1930s and so we managed to tick off some some films that were on our blacklists some classics for yeah. sure. Um, so I'll, I'll quickly just read out uh, number three you gave to The Silence of the Lambs. I gave it to Dogtooth. Number two, you gave it to Once Upon a Time in the West, while I gave it to Roma. And then number one, you gave it to Nebraska. So was, at the time, I guess that would be your personal number one pick. Mm-hmm. And then mine would have been Blind Spotting. And then, of course, we both came together to do Once. So uh, with that in mind, let's do our 2020 Golden Chock Top Awards, Zeke. What is your number three film? My number three is the Orson Welles directorial debut, Citizen Kane. Mm, Very nice. Now, that sounds awfully low for Citizen Kane, um, considering what it is. But to be honest, you know, it was one of those films that obviously we went into knowing that it was a masterpiece. And when you see a film that lives up to your expectations, that's great. But you walk away and go, yep, that was a masterpiece. <laughs> and then you talk, we talk about it on the episode and we did talk about it in, in quite immense detail, mm. but it obviously met expectations and did not exceed expectations, which means I can't really put it any higher Right. On this list. Well, yeah, it's it's like you're saying, you know, with a film that's just already renowned and well-respected, you don't need to give it the number one. Mm, it's almost I... kind of a boring approach well, to uh, it. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, it's a film that's been around for nearly 80 years now, so it's like it's had a lot of acclaim. Yeah. Um, so going into it and seeing that it met all that acclaim, that's great. But, <laughs> you know, it's it doesn't need another award or accolade. Yeah, for sure. So I got you. Over to you, buddy. Well, my number three is, and we just mentioned this, my number three is Shirley, 
Oh, now, okay. Right. Again, it, this has kind of been regarded the fact that it was it was the first film. Was it? Yeah, no, it was. It was the first film that we saw um, in cinemas after the theaters opened again with COVID and everything. Um, but I just really dug it. We went into the film completely blind because mm-hmm. I think the week before we literally, while on the show recording, said, "Do you just want to do one of the films that I just read on new to cinemas?" So we just sort of picked the one that sounded the most interesting to us. And yeah. we went into expecting a flat-out horror. And yes. we didn't quite get that. We got something a bit more psychological and a bit more reserved and a bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. So um, I think... And we obviously, we just talked about it. I don't have to go too much into depth. But I think that's why I gave it my third place. Because um, of the context of that, of it being quite a surprise. We didn't know what to expect going into it. And uh, it's a great film. And you're right. The, the cast, those four people, are just so good together. Their chemistry. So... Shirley, well done. <laughs> well done, indeed. So my number two spot goes to The Graduate. Oh, so, very nice. Um, this is the first time... This is speaking of films that I knocked off the my own personal blacklist. This was the first time I managed to catch The Graduate. The first ever poem was from Dustin Hoffman, if I'm... One of his first. One of very, his first. Very, very, very early, yes. Um, and I enjoyed this film immensely. There was a... I think we walked away from this film and we knew that we were going to uh, enjoy it. And it was a, it's a similar situation to Citizen Kane, although I've heard more divisive critiques of The Graduate than I have of Citizen Kane. Interesting. Um, but I think this film, it came, it actually, it comes back to also context, like we always like to reframe it back to. This is the film we caught when you and I graduated. Yeah, we um, it pretty gra- much aligned almost perfectly. I think we recorded and released it. A day before we graduated, or mm-hmm. it went up the day we graduated. So Something that was like interesting that, yeah. in its own right, because obviously um, we obviously had a bit of personal context attached to the film. Um, and yeah, we I found it an immensely entertaining film with some insanely impressive performances. But the question is, yes, did he have to go through COVID isolation like we did when we graduated? <laughs> <laughs> no, he did not. <laughs> so no. we had it harder. <laughs> exactly. I'll throw it back to you. Cool. Well, my number two, and this is really the only film I'm dwelling into in terms of a classic, in terms of our decades challenge. Uh, I picked 2001, A Space Odyssey, um, because much like you know, us going to Citizen Kane, we sort of expected something great. I love Kubrick films. This is the first time I saw it to do this podcast to episode 73. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Again, like you're right, it's hard to be blown away by a film when it's so highly praised, but I still was blown away <laughs> by what this film did for a film that came out in nineteen what was it, sixty eight? Late sixties? Mm. I came I know it came out before the moon landing, which is bonkers yeah, to even think crazy. about that. Um but just how well it holds up, the patience of it, what it says to thematically about sort of life and, and technology and and sort of living past our own means in a way. Like, this is so much to take from this film. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. No worries. Well, over to my number one. Number one. It will have to be the Paul Thomas Anderson film, There Will Be Blood. Oh, very nice. Um, now, this film's probably not what you'd call a classic yet. It's not been, you know, it's only a 2007 film. But it's a film that I watched for the first time last year and was just blown away by it and Mm. coming back to it for this show was amazing it was a it was a it's a film that it really does feel like 
the perfect Paul Thomas Anderson film, I think. Right, yeah. Um, I don't think he will ever top this film. It's definitely his magnum opus compared to his... I mean, he's made some great films. I I think I personally like Punch Drug Love more, but I acknowledge this is definitely like a better Well, I probably have love for Boogie Nights or Mm. even Magnolia. I really enjoyed, which I caught for the first time this year. And, um, but I keep coming back to this film and I, I'm blown away. You watch that scene when, when he's, you know, when Daniel Day-Lewis is doing that, abandon my child. Uh, abandon mono, my boy. And Paul Dano is just screaming at oh, him. Paul Dano. <laughs> my boy, um, Paul Dano. And it's probably, debatably, I would say the best performance from both of those actors. Yeah, um, you could argue that. So yeah, I love this. I love this film, and I'd happily give it my runner-up for the Golden Chalk Tops this year. There you go. It's a great pick and a great director's corner we did. I think it was episode eighty, if I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, mine was a few weeks earlier from that. My number one, and this isn't—I don't think this is going to be a surprise to anyone. It feels a little weird saying it, but hey, it fits the criteria. Like my number one is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I'm glad I knew you were going to pick it, so I just didn't even bother. <laughs> it was going to get a mention. <laughs> Um, so I watched this film for the first... I mean, I've said this story a thousand times. I've watched it for the first time New Year's Eve 2019. It was the last film of the decade that I had watched. It's also one of my favourites of the decade. I think it's brilliant. I actually just ordered the Criterion... Well, I told you when when, uh, when Kish ordered her copy, I ordered myself a copy. So yeah. I have the Criterion Collection Blu-ray of it. And, um, I mean, we said everything we needed to in episode 77. It's It's such a brilliant film and... It felt weird not talking about it in an awards capacity up until now, mm-hmm. um, and I figured it just it just has to make the cut. You're right. It's brilliant, brilliant direction, very bold. Uh, the performances are excellent. I I just love it. It's no worries. Film. Well, it is time, Jake, for us to move into our 2020 second annual Golden Chalk Top Award. <laughs> but Jake, who's taking who's taking the Golden Chalk Top home? The winner this year, the Golden Chalk Top Award is Baby Teeth. Jake, you are indeed correct. A Cat Empire. <laughs> the Cat Empire so, movie. The Cat Empire, no. <laughs> Obviously, um, I actually think this film was the quintessential quartet film of 2020. Yeah. And kind of rounds off what I've been feeding with my other two. I mean, that's three films we've brought up with quartet performances in this conversation alone. Yeah. Like, if 2020 wasn't the year of, of quartet performances, I, I, I don't know what was. <laughs> well, like you said, um, Baby Teeth... Uh, Australian film. It's um, from Shannon Murphy. It's pretty excellent. Directorial it's... debut. Yes, yes. Uh, after his graduate, I believe. But um, th- this is, I mean, we saw it in a theatre. This is actually one of the first after Shirley that we saw. Mm-hmm. Um, episode 81, we did this film. And yeah, I mean, Eliza Scanlon, another one of the loves of my life. <laughs> Essie <laughs> Davis, Toby Wallace, and one Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah, um, they're... It, they are perfect together. Yeah. It's honestly, it's a wildly impressive cast. Um, and 
It obviously follows the deteriorating health of Eliza Scanlon's character over the course of presumably a couple months. It's not like very Yeah, it's kind of hard to tell, actually, um, how long it's been. But um, you're right, like the, the deterioration of that and the family dynamic as she dates this local drug dealer. Um, and even he actually, I think he won like the Best Upcoming Actor or some award at, I think, Venice, which is pretty awesome. But... Uh, what I loved about it is sort of what it says about having agency in your own life, regardless of your age. Mm-hmm. And I love sort of that. It, it wasn't explicitly said, but I love the idea of how she is someone who was like 17, 18 years old, and her parents are still sort of treating her like a child, but she's also on the far end of her life. doesn't matter how old she is. She's on the far end of her life, and she wants to have these experiences. I loved all of that. That was sort of sprinkled in there as mm. well. Um, we and- got the ability to watch this in an empty cinema too. Oh, you're right. It was completely empty. It was me and you. Yeah. Just in the cinema. And so obviously we joke, but this was the first film that we can recall off the top of our head that had a Cat Empire song, which is you and I's favourite band we to go see together. in the, in the theatre. Um, and <laughs> it, there's something amazing. Look, we never want to encourage empty cinemas, right? Like we, we would love to have cinemas constantly be filled because it helps the industry, helps it grow. But there is something amazing and intimate about just going with you and a mate and sitting in an empty cinema. Yeah. Um, we've had it only happen a handful of times. Um, and honestly, yeah, this would probably be the standout great film that we had seen in a cinema by ourselves, probably. I can't recall any off the top of my head that we enjoyed as much as watching this film. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were just so impressed and so proud. Just yeah. as, an, as Australian filmmakers, we're just really proud of this film. Yeah, I mean, we might be talking about a film in a couple of weeks where I, I sort of said to you after watching it, I was like, I don't know why, but we just seem to do um, crime genres and, and sort of crime desperation genre the best. Mm. And this film has nothing even remotely close to that. Yeah. And this is very much a, a, a just a classic drama film um, and has just layered performances from all of them and some of the most heavy and then some of the most heartwarming scenes, you know, often back to back with each other. And yeah, um, this film is, a, is amazingly and subtly immersive into an Australian backdrop. I mean, there are a couple of scenes, I think we talked about it on the episode where just the soundscape design is just subtly so Australian. Yeah. That you like the kookaburras in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> it's just you just forget the that this film could be easily Americanized or Europeanized and it would probably carry a similar agency, but because it's such a well done Australian film, um, I think we, we enjoy it that much more. Yeah, for sure. It, it and like you said, it's it doesn't feel or look like the typical Australian film, which was, I guess, <clears throat> excuse me, part of the reason I loved it so much. Mm. <laughs> it's just it wasn't yeah. the typical. I think you hit the nail on the head too. It's really an exploration of having agency and accountability in your life as we sort of follow four very, you know, albeit lost individuals mm. um, and sort of their all their own personal explorations for self-identity and their overarching... Uh, need to be a family together and not a clear-cut nuclear family, but just a family that can sustain and support each other. Yeah. And I think uh, that's really nailed home in the last 10 minutes of the film with one of, honestly, one of the best epilogues 
Um, yeah, oh, man. I'm just thinking about that scene, the very last scene. Yeah. yeah. It's excellent. And it's, yeah. So this is the film that we would absolutely, if you get an opportunity, I think it's out on DVD It now. is. I'm, I'm campaigning for the Blu-ray <laughs> one day. I do not understand how some Australian films can get, like, how did Hounds of Love get a Blu-ray release yet? I mean, Hounds of Love is excellent. I love Hounds well. of Love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm pretty sure Baby Teeth will have a bigger budget than Hounds of Love. Ah, uh, maybe. Yeah. I don't know if it's even about budgets at that point. It's more maybe the theatrical. I, I really couldn't tell you. I don't yeah. know how Screen West works with that. But. No worries. Well, I hope you enjoyed our second annual awards ceremony, Jake. There you go. Congratulations to Baby Teeth, our second Golden Chalk Top winner. Forever and ever. Yes. <laughs> I have to, have to send a... We, we were thinking about getting trophies designed. Send trophies. Like a shield or something that we can like engrave. Yeah. Shannon Murphy checks them out. What the hell is this? <laughs> Chucks it in the bin. <laughs> Just at them, see if we get a reply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I think it's time for us to move into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? This week of the show, we're watching Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. These records are going to be hits. Please come home to me. Every colored man in the world got to do his part. I'm gonna tell the white man just what he can do. They don't care nothing about me. All they want is my voice. About them songs I give you. They're not the right songs. That'll take them off your hands for you. I got my time coming to me. You don't know nothing about what kind of blood I got, what kind of heart I got beat here. Come on, come on! Tensions rise when a trailblazing blues singer, Ma Rainey, and her band gather at a recording studio in Chicago, 2000 and... Oh, sorry, 1927. Well, this would be a different film. It took place in 2027. Was, <laughs> got so caught up in our awards <laughs> ceremony. I got the year wrong. I, don't know, uh, I have it right. right in front of me and everything, Jake. But, <laughs> yes, this is an interesting film, and I think kind of a culturally relevant film for us to talk about, both mm. in terms of context of... This is the last performance from Chadwick Boseman, yeah, um, who passed away in I think September, I think August, August last year, yeah. Um, and yeah, this is also a film that's getting quite a bit of award buzz. Mm. So and I can see why. Yes, of course. Um, I think this time of year we really try and we kind of obviously didn't get as much build up due to obviously me going away last year for uh, our Oscars. I think mm. we did a lot of stuff after the Oscars rather than. Before. before, whereas this year I think you know the next couple of films will probably get a a little bit more of a look in and a discussion. So well, it's funny because I actually um, sent a tweet to the Academy and I said, "Hey, um, you know, you were traveling, or you know, Zeke was traveling, and you guys did it early in February. So can we like fix that?" So they actually said to me, "We're going to do it in April next year." So, wow! Uh, I, I didn't actually, realize you have these connections. I personally changed the date of the Oscars uh, so that we had more time, Zeke, to talk about them on our podcast. That was very modest of you, <laughs> Jake. Um, <laughs> modest is a word for so it. So I managed to catch this film pretty much as soon as it got released, within like the the week or so it got okay. added to Netflix. Mm. Um, I think this got added after Boxing Day, didn't it? No, mm. was it? Um... Oh gosh, I can't remember. I think it was before Christmas. Okay, because I watched it pretty quickly when it came out, and I managed to catch it a second time this morning, thankfully. So mm. 
I didn't get a lot out of a second viewing, to be honest. I really, like, it all hit me in that first viewing. I didn't really need a second viewing, but... Yeah, so obviously, yeah. quick backstories behind this film. I was mm. watching it, and one of my immediate reactions while watching it was, indeed, that it felt like a stage play. Right. Now, I obviously didn't do too much uh, pre-research, because I always like to leave that stuff until after the film. Um, obviously, this film is actually based on a literally a screenplay of the same a stage play of the same name so yeah so it's um the august wilson wilson yeah august wilson play which premiered in 1984 yeah yeah it's definitely that sounds right hmm. cool but um the, the whole thing and if you want more context on on him specifically watch giving voice on netflix this is a documentary about august Wins, uh, wilson past his uh his passing in 2004 2005 i think and sort of this program he has where uh, young uh, minorities can go and do uh, monologues on on a Broadway, and it's really great. But it gives you a bit more context on his plays mm-hmm. and a little bit about Ma Rainey. But um, yeah, so this is an adaptation of that. You are correct. For mm. George C. Wolfe, this is his what well, looks to be his fifth directorial film. Yeah, I saw. I was going. Through, was it his films? I was going through. They all seemed a little. Like, the posters look a little corny, maybe. I mean, none of them are, like, badly reviewed, I don't think. No, they're all relatively positive. Nothing that hits below a three. Oh, no, 2.7, so, yeah. Um, okay, they're still not terrible. Yeah, so nothing nothing that's uh, hugely positive, but nothing that was hugely negative, very yeah. middle-of-the-road sort of stuff. They all... This is probably his first film that kind of takes a bit more of a political stance, it looks like, at least from the surface level. Okay. Um... But yeah, I haven't, uh, I haven't seen any of these films. So I have I not. Know. This is the only one from him I've managed to catch. Jake, initial thoughts? Um, I thought this was excellent. I really do. I love. There's a lot to talk about in terms of the wider scope of the time period. I know we've made a joke about it actually taking place in 2027, mm. but um, the time po- the time period is very important, of course, yeah. to the backdrop. This film doesn't work without the backdrop of you know the great Northern. Uh, sort of, uh, what's the word? Transfer migration, the Great Northern mm. migration of of um, African Americans trying to move away from this historic Civil War area, and the North is like, "Hey, come up here. We'll give you a better life." And we see in this film, it's not quite the better life. There's still racism going on, even if it's a bit more subtle. Uh, there's still the threat of thievery, which we'll get into in terms of uh, their music and their mm. culture, specifically jazz. I thought that was all great, and I and again the performances. I think mean, Chadwick Boseman is incredible in this film. Yeah, obviously, given um, I'm not a hundred percent sure when this film was shot, but I can't mm. imagine it would be. It was before August. <laughs> I know uh, that. I can imagine it would probably be in late 2019, <laughs> early 2000, right? Or so. Obviously, given his um, health, would have mm. been a serious consideration at that time. Um, this is an amazingly uh, memorable performance and mm. honestly for for Bozeman it was nice to see him in a film that wasn't attached to the MCU right um, as I personally have not seen anything outside he's in like 21 bridges and stuff but I never I never got to that he's in um Defy Bloods he is in Defy Bloods that's mm. literally the only other film that I can remember him he's in Draft Day I've seen Draft Day didn't really remember him all that much in that film. That film's right. just not memorable, period. I don't think he got many opportunities to really step outside of his MCU 
shadow. I mean, if you look at his... The first four films that are listed on his acting bio are all MCU films. Right. So, well, that, that goes by popularity, so it's not a surprise. Yeah, of course. Um, he was great in Duffy Bloods. Okay. Um, at least in his uh, reasonably, uh, you know, he was more a, an ensemble cast member in that. But obviously, being a Spike Lee film, it's normally always a good chance that it's going to be an entertaining film that has a lot of. Uh, but other than that, and this film, these are the only other tombs I can really give an accurate sort of performance analysis with, and mm. I think he was incredible in this. Yeah. Um, this film, for me, was definitely um, his performance, and I think, honestly, he's still a little bit overshadowed by Viola Davis's presence. I think she okay. is... She's her. Like, she's just such a commanding presence on a screen mm. that it's so hard to really compete with her in terms of um, just memorable performances. I know she's probably out of the two of them more likely to pick up awards, I think. Um, I think if they put her in supporting she's probably got a better chance. Yeah. I would I'd love to see Chadwick in the lead uh, category lead nominations. I think he has a great shot. I really do. I mean, mm. there's performances that I really love from this past year, but a lot of them aren't going to get nominated for Oscars. They're just not not going to have the the budgets or the campaigns for it. And then you look at something like Mank, and it's like, yeah, Gary Oldman's great in it, but I think people, and especially the Academy, they're just kind of sick of these. You know, oh, it's it's a you know insider David Fincher film, and I just I don't. No, and I'm, I could be wrong. I could just be drawing a blank right now, mm-hmm. but I really can't think of any other performance that was as flashy or as interesting or as impressive. And unfortunately, the fact that he has passed away mm-hmm. probably means he's got a better shot at it simply because of that. Well, yeah, of course. Um, let's have a look-see here. Um, yeah, I I think some for me, uh, the points in which I enjoyed this film the most was... The fact that it very much kept to its probably traditional uh, stage play roots mm. in terms of it kept the locations very minimal. Yep. Um, a good half of the film, at least a half of the film, takes place in a band sort of green room. Right. Like situation. a little stairs area. Yeah. Um, and a good collection of the monologues and, and back and forth. Obviously, you know, we're speaking very broadly of Bozeman's character, but he is a flashy, aspiring uh, jazz musician mm-hmm. who thinks he's got the system worked out, as per se, with how these uh, this more north-based uh, uh, white man uh, system works, mm-hmm. where it's, you know, you play into their capitalistic greed... And well, there's sort of an, an ignorance from that. I think he, that yeah. um, Levy is so obsessed with the idea that his talent is all he needs to to get through in life. And you're right. Then you got you know Ma Rainey of Viola Davis's character, who is aware of the corruption and is aware of the danger of you know signing that release form. And you flip that with Levy, who's literally just giving his sons away to the guy, being like, "Ah, oh, this is gonna be great. I'll give him my sons. He will love them." without any clue as to how he could get screwed over by that. And that speaks to the whole film, just the sort of the inner hierarchy of what's going on, the fact that 
you know, uh, that Levy is late to the... He's late because he thinks he has... He carries that importance. He's late to yeah. the green room, if you will. But then Ma Rainey is even later, you know, and there's always that sort of toppling of them trying to get on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone... I mean, everyone has different motives, period, because you got the guy who's sort of running it. Um, let me just double-check his name. Uh, Mel... St- what was his name? Stro... Stervik? I don't have his full name here. It's actually cutting off my screen. <laughs> but, you know, the guy is running the, the yeah, show. Yeah, Cutler Toledo and Slow Drag and then the I'm talking about Jonathan Queen's character. Yes. Yeah, uh, so Sturdy Vent. Yep, Sturdy Vent. That's it. He um he clearly just wants them in and out. I think there's a bit of racism there. He doesn't want them in there another mm-hmm. second longer. But also the fact that his goal is to just take the music. That's what he's going to do. And then you look at someone like Irving's character, the guy from Birdman which was really driving me insane until I looked it up and I was like, oh, he's in Birdman, um, who I think generally has a love for the music and for mm-hmm. getting the recording done and managing the band, but he also is a bit naive where who does he want to impress more? Does he want to impress Ma Rainey or does he want to impress the other guy? So I think there's all of these mixtures in terms of the, the hierarchy that they put themselves on versus what they're actually trying to do. It's all very clever sort of that weaves into the wider context of of African Americans trying to hold on to their culture and their music, so I like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so, what what are some of the bigger positives that you took from this? Well, I mean, let's talk a bit about Chadwick Boseman's like performance more specifically. Mm-hmm. We talked about he's a bit of a hot head, he's charismatic, mm-hmm. and um, and the thing I wanted is I'm kind of shocked that Disney even let him do this role. Why is that? Well, I mean, you look at how um, Chris Evans was sort of. Treated. I mean, it's like when we look at those AFL players, they're so, on paper, they're meant to be so disciplined during an active mm-hmm. season. And then you look at Chris Evans and he's not allowed to be seen doing anything until his contract with Marvel's over. You know, Disney are very protective of their image because they play the superheroes. So I was surprised that he let him play his character because if you think about it, it's not even just the hot-headedness, the fact that, and, and you know, this is just from the original script, but like the language that he uses and the whole cast uses, it's like, oh, is Disney happy about that? The fact he's a bit of a sexual deviant with the girl. And what he does, we won't spoil it yet, but what he does at the end of the film. So yeah. I, was, I was a little shocked that <laughs> Disney were like, yeah, you can go ahead and do that movie. That's fine. Well, yeah, mate, there might be a bit more... Uh, it could be a contract situation. Um, obviously, Bozeman came in way later on, so maybe the... as uh, compared to actually. Evan, or compared to Evans in terms of contracts. Oh, right, right. Sorry. Um, yeah. So maybe the strictness... Might have uh, been a bit alleviated at that point. It could be just a negotiation thing. Maybe his agent was better at negotiating a bit more freedom. I mean, Bozeman did do a couple of films in his time while he was still the Black Panther. So right. um, perhaps there was just, yeah, some better negotiations are going on there. But I do agree. This is quite a disparity in terms of um, performances. Whereas if you look at stuff that... Chris Evans did sort of in his time. I mean, the first one I think of is that, um, what's that one where he goes, the, the kid that's super smart? Gifted. Oh, Gifted, yeah. In which he plays a pretty straight-laced character in that. Yeah, um, well, exactly. So, but then you compare it to when he contract ran out and he played, you know, that character in, in Knives, Knives Out. out. Yeah. Um, but you could, you could literally tell in that movie, yeah. this was him having fun with this role again, yeah. where he's telling other characters to eat shit. Yeah. And that's why I was kind of surprised by that because the, my main takeaway is that that Levy is such a dick mm-hmm. 
but he's kind of likable. Did you find him likable? Um, his monologue, which is probably one of the, mm. the, the strongest parts of his performance, obviously gives him the empathy, but empathy doesn't mean likability. Okay. I think that's the difference. Like, um, you know, Toledo's character, who gives a very similar monologue, um, but speaks more broadly and less personally about the issue of racism in America at the time, um, promotes a far more likable character. You know, he knows that he's not... He's older and wiser. Yeah, and he knows that this is just a good way to get by and make money and he's aware of the situation and he knows... At the end of the day, each of these characters offers um, a way of of tackling the same issue and mm. um, a film that it kind of can draw parallels with, which I watched was um, uh, I'm trying to remember the forgotten, the normal heart, which is sort of how the LGBTQ, the, you know, the gay community t- uh, uh, tackled the AIDS epidemic and how they all had different ideologies and methodologies to combat the same bigotry and right. um, include, and this has a very similar sort of, standpoint just with a with a different um issue obviously this is concerning the you know the racism issues in america and each of the characters has a different way of tackling that racism you know levy's character sort of takes more that i'm playing into their world because i'm winning because i'm playing their game right toledo's character is far more just observatory he he knows that this is the only way to sort of stay afloat, but he's well aware that he's working for people that are quite horrible. They just hide it better. And and Ma Rainey's character is very much like, they need me, so I'm going to make sure that they work for it because this is one of the few instances in which the tables are turned and she's aware of that and she exposes Sort of relishes in it in a way. Yeah, well, because she knows that after they've got her voice on recording... It's over. That's it. It goes back to being normal. And that's definitely, um, you know, juxtaposed with the opening scene when she, you know, gets accused of hitting someone with a car and the police officer comes in and she, you know, the outrage that she feels. And and she really walks that that intelligent but also menacing line. And I think that that's what makes her character so entertaining because she's not a bad person, but she just knows how to fight. Well, that's the thing. She's kind of the old stubborn early woman who like knows what she wants and knows the power that she holds and yeah we might be a little you know disarmed when she's fighting with a police officer but it's because that's the world that she's in and we even see that earlier when she's leaving her i guess like her apartment block Mm. or something wherever she's staying maybe a hotel right because they're in chicago they were in um georgia before that and everyone and they're they're all you know african-americans as well but they're all staring at her they're sort of disassociated with her she has this power that goes beyond just race, which I thought was very interesting because she is, I guess, this famous musician. She's the mother of the blues. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was an interesting juxtaposition. And even like when she's like demanding for the Coke. Now, every now and then, I you know, I get the, oh, come on, you're being a dick too now. When she's like, I want my Coke. Well, I'll go get it. You just record the song. No, I want my Coke now. Like, I like that they push it to that extent where it's like, yeah, I completely get with her a few times, but well, then in like, those little instances, it's like, ah, I guess, you're, being a bit, uh, you're being a bit picky here, ma. But I think that's the whole point, is <laughs> yeah, she's yeah, pushing yeah. back 
mostly, and I think that comes back to her monologues when she's like, the reason I push is because I can, because this is the only yeah. time I can. Exactly. That's um, how you got to live your life. I get it. Yeah, but, you get it. but then you're right. Levy has a different approach where he's like, yes, sir, mister, yes, sir, here's my sheet music, but we see it doesn't really go his way. No. I mean, it's a pretty dire, if we want to get a bit spoilish. Well, I think there's pretty. This film is definitely a film we'd absolutely recommend to watch, but yep. because it undergoes the stage play formula and is very true to it, it's tough to avoid spoilers. And yeah, the fact of sure. the matter is, it's a film that it's a pretty tight, just under two hours. It's like it's like an hour thirty-five. There you go. It's very, very tight. Often, yeah, very tight. So it's definitely a film we'd recommend watching. But I think we might as well just dive into spoilers because. I can't really beat around the bush anymore. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, it all it all connects to the ending, and it all ties together. And I think no one, none of them win. The only one who really wins at the end is the white dude who gets to steal music and sell mm-hmm. it to other white dudes to play that music. Yeah, and it's like well, it leads you know, to Toledo's death, and and mm-hmm. because it's it's sort of like Levy is he's tried to play the system and he's failed, and every in every yeah. turn, and um. He sort of snaps and he hits this breaking point where sort of he needs to concede after spending a good period of time claiming that his way was the right way and he acts mm-hmm. out in hatred and ends up turning on on the, you know, the wiser and more stoic Toledo character in which we're left in just a heap, which we now know he'll probably go to prison and probably, you know, die and Toledo's dead and... Rainy loses loses her access to her music once again and has to continue to just work in the world that she's working in. Well, that's the thing, you're right. It's just everyone sort of ends up... And you can almost argue it's sort of whose fault is it in a lot of these scenarios. It's obviously not Ma Rainey's fault that she you know signed the release form and gave it away. She fought as much as she could yeah. against this. And also, before I figure that, you want to point out the fact that I'm pretty sure in real life this was not her first recording session, but it obviously makes sense in this context that this be a first because she's so hesitant to the recording. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to throw that out. I'm pretty sure she's recorded records before this in real life. Yeah, and of course it, it does lead to Levy's song being played by uh, white jazz mm-hmm. musicians. So that sort of leads into the whole movement of when, you know, so like bluegrass, a swing and, yeah, bluegrass and swing, yeah. and that's where... It sort of evolves into what eventually becomes things like Elvis and such, mm. which completely took their sound and became wildly successful with it. Yeah, cue Bill Burr. <laughs> well, I think because, again, this is all sort of with the expectation that you go into this film mostly knowing this context, the mm-hmm. musical transitions, because I can imagine someone not really knowing any of that context, just watching this for the sake of watching it and being very confused by the ending. Mm-hmm. I guess it shouldn't be that confusing, but it does have an expectation. You know this about the migration, about what happened to their music. Um, there's very little flashes throughout this film, and it's mostly at the very beginning when it's the transition between them going from Georgia to Chicago, and it cuts to like sort of this grueling, you know, um, labor intensive work that a lot of black people have to do. Because this is the kind of work they get up north mm-hmm. is to work with you know these coals and the rule in the sewing machines is very factory esque, and I guess it's trying to juxtapose that the musicians are in a more luxury side, even though they have to fight in a very different way to make their living. But I was surprised how little of it there was. Like, do you even remember these shots? Like, no. they're, v- they're very quick flashes. 
that I guess are, are sort of expositoring the world. Oh, there's a few, yeah. There's I a don't couple. remember a lot, though. There's a couple in Toledo's quick. monologues. They cut to the outside. That's a, yes, they do that too. Um, yep. That's the only times I can recall it, though. Yeah, it's right at the beginning. It's after the prologue mm. before they go to Chicago. It just sort of shows a couple of images of that, which is just in execution is really weird because they didn't touch on it enough. Yeah, it's sort of just a... Maybe just to help break up the very limited scene changes, maybe, or or such. I, I'm not 100% maybe. sure. I mean, I don't think they need it, because it's, it's literally like a one minute of screen time across yeah. the entire movie. Very confusing. So it, it's clearly there to comment on this, mm. on what happened to the people who migrated up north, but it it was very subtle and very quick. So yeah. I, I don't know how much I think it was effective from that standpoint. No worries. Well, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, let's talk about the shoes, Zeke. The let's, shoes. Let's talk about the shoes. Those bright yellow shoes. Now, I think a lot of people might go into this being a little surprised. It might feel like a bit of a jump at first mm-hmm. that he becomes, like, murderous <laughs> for the shoes. But I kind of get what they're trying to do from a semiotic point of view where the shoes... I mean, they do plant it throughout the entire mm-hmm. film, him buying your shoes and the first time... Well, I think in his monologue, off. it becomes very clear that he's capable of... Uh, That's true. Of m- murderous and, and uh, well, giant swings of violence mm. because it's it's in him. Yeah. So, um, I think it's for it's not for like it still was a it was a real shock moment, right? When it happened, but I mean it's alluded to like the knife was alluded to and and obviously the shoes were the the, the sort of the separate. The, the driving line between Levy and the rest of the the backing band. Um, in terms of he... Uh, the thing I went is that they're wants and needs. Mm. And those shoes are really a want. They're not a need. He doesn't mm. need those shoes. But the band makes fun of him because he spends a week's pay on these yellow shoes. Yeah. So I uh, that's a really good point. I agree with you sort of how it sort of dissects him away from the rest of the band. Mm-hmm. Sort of just another... He's a young kid. He's blowing his money, sort of. Thing. Irresponsibly, yep. immaturely. He thinks that if he can dress, you know, I think there are actual lines where he's like, if you can dress like one of them, it's sort of that he's trying to separate himself mm. from his own, um, you know, his own race and his own culture because he thinks that's the solution. Now, I, I do think that they balance that really well with his monologue and obviously they talk about don't tell me that I'm becoming one of them because I'm I'm doing it because it, he feels like it's a game. Right. Whereas Toledo's character knows it's a cultural and social problem and I think that dichotomy between the two is where fundamental ideology is uh, what separates them and what drives Levy's character to act out in violence irrationally. Um, obviously because Toledo nicks his shoe. <laughs> you got my shoe there's a funny letterbox review that I think it, it's like a four star review and it just says a one a two a don't touch my shoe which mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought was really clever so, yeah I think it's an interesting exploration do you have anything to add to it yeah well you mentioned the monologue and I I'm just want to double check this is what he said because I think it actually kind of relates to the very first scene so you may remember the film opens in a dark forest you can mm. hear like the you know the creatures howling and stuff, and there's two people running, and I think the idea this is what I got is that oh they're running from something, this kid somebody's chasing them, and then you find out they're actually just running towards the music. They're trying to make the concert on time. 
or the show. Um, and doesn't Chadwick Boseman mention like his dad being chased in the woods or burnt in the woods? Isn't that a thing that he mentions? Oh, he got chased in the woods, yeah, and he yeah. would hunt down this group of people over yeah. time, yeah. I think that was a, a very intentional juxtaposition because mm-hmm. they're trying to trick you at first. They're trying to... It, it's almost like they're tricking you into thinking this is like a Civil War film before realising, oh, it's actually a peaceful, loving community yeah. they're running towards. They're running forward. So that was something I noticed the second time. I guess I shouldn't say I got nothing out of a second viewing. There you go. So I guess that's not true. Um, all right. Well, other than actually, I take that back. There's two quick points I want to make, and then, okay. then we'll do our highlight scenes. I reckon. Um, the other one I mentioned this a couple of weeks back when I was talking about this film of passing, but I just want to talk a bit about the lighting and the heat of the film. Okay, reminds me a lot of Do the Right Thing, where it's yeah. very hot. All the characters are very sweaty. Um, it's very hot. Yeah. Was it just was it you as well, or was it the Australian heat? While well, watching this film, sort of got you can <laughs> got definitely to. feel the, the sweat part, and I think that plays into the, obviously the stage play aesthetic too. Yep. I think um, obviously it would have been a part well, of the environment, but apparently I read somewhere that the stage play was meant to be winter. They actually changed it for the movie to that's be in the very summer. Very intriguing. I think that's a very clever change. Well, I think the heat might parallel with obviously the south, maybe all that, mm. that sort of uh, trying to draw the because often when we portray the south in this sort of time frame it's always portrayed in the summer it's very rarely portrayed in the winter it's always about the heat in those like cotton fields sort of situations so i think there might be a parallel intention there yeah but yeah you definitely feel it from like the tungsten bulbs yeah yeah exactly that was really good well speaking of the bulbs the 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 second thing i want to talk about is and I mean, this is a common problem with a lot of stage plays we haven't really talked about a lot of negatives with this film Mm -hmm. if i had to pick one i'd say that even though I think the dialogue is great, it's based on the play, but um, the, I don't think there's a lot of clever visual storytelling. There's little bits here and there, and you just mentioned I like the close-ups of like the recording. Yeah, it's a, it's a similar problem with normal heart faces. Unfortunately, these stage play to screen adaptations often have a collection of monologues which are really thoroughly um, explored, edited, and refined, so they're mm. very concentrated doses, but particularly Bozeman's character f- fluctuates so heavily in emotion, um, which might play into his sort of impulsive, immature nature, but mm. he does go from angry to joking to really upset. to, And he has multiple monologues in which they're all delivered uh, very hyper-emotionally. And that sort of emotion works really well in a stage play sense because obviously when you're sitting there, you only get one viewing of things. Um, but sometimes it just doesn't work on a screen, I find, um, because you'll have a monologue and then you'll have a couple minutes and then you'll have another monologue and then a couple minutes. And it's not just Bozeman's ones, it's Toledo's monologues, it's Viola Davis's monologues where if they put them in quick succession, you find it ends up becoming 15, 20 minutes of just monologues from characters. Right, yeah. Explaining purpose, motion, and motive, where that's where visual storytelling mm. um, would come into play sometimes. But that might be a limitation also of the environment they're in, I think. Yeah. Um, the... It's a recording studio. There's only mm. so much they can do in it to really carry over the visual storytelling. And maybe that's why they cut away to the outside occasionally, but... Um, yeah, whenever they can. I I feel bad saying it because it's like there are moments of great. Um, like you said, there's a lot of um, monologues, and I actually read that I think especially for Chadwick Boseman's monologue that they were thinking of like cutting around, like having 
like f- images flashing back to mm. the past, and I think they had to fight to make it just the camera rest on him, which I'm glad. Mm-hmm. I obviously want to just see the monologue play out. Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, I guess that would only might be my only complaint if I had to think of one. I do like in the opening scene, um, they do sort of flash to those little newspaper vintage or whatever, and then they do like this weird zoom in to both Chadwick and and Viola, two different mm-hmm. zoom shots, which look very nice. They look kind of classical in a way. Yeah. But um, oh well, it's, I think it's a bit of a nitpicky complaint because they do try. No worries. What's well, highlight scene time, buddy? All right. Well, what's your highlight scene, Seek? Uh, I'd probably say it has to be the Bozeman monologue. I think okay. that that's um, that switch that he hits when he's getting prodded by the band that mm. he's sort of you know caving to the white man system with the yes sirs and then and he snaps and then he shows that cut across his chest. Yeah. Um, that's that's some very powerful and what a swan song performance. Yeah, for sure. It's such a shame because mm. I think a lot of people, me included, we didn't realize how brilliant he was until this film. Until in a way, yeah. it was. Well, he wasn't given. I don't think he was given the opportunities. Like you look at his, he's not got a lot of chances outside of those MCU films. Well, that's the thing. I just think in MCU, in terms of mainstream exposure, I mean. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, that's what I mean is, um, with the MCU, it's uh, there's going to be a lot of people who sort of just ignore it mm. because the MCU is. I was rewatching Avengers Endgame the other day, and I, I forget how. Because the camera work and the editing and that is so precise, because it's a three-hour movie, they have so much to fit in there. Mm-hmm. And the Russos are great directors, but it's so precise that the actors don't have any room to act. And like the amount of gestures that Captain America gives, like he just does gestures because there's no room for dialogue. So yeah. he just sort of does like a, a look down or he sort of crosses his arms and looks to the corner. With that in mind, there's not a lot of... There's not room for great performances in the MCU. Yeah. So we're not looking for Chadwick Boseman to be the best actor in Black Panther. And, that film's um, renowned for whatever. Well, I would say that Black Panther's, some of their biggest takeaways are Michael B. Jordan's performance in that, right. that original film rather than Boseman's performance. Um, so it was really nice to give have that, and I think that monologue was a was a great mm. a great performance. So yeah, great over to you, buddy. To yeah, for sure. So my highlight scene is probably... The uh the actual first performance of Black Bottom, the one that isn't recorded, that they forgot to record. Mm. Um, because it obviously it lets the song play out and it's really great. But even just the lead up to that when they've got um uh Dusan Brown's uh character trying to say mm. the words and he can't, he's got the yeah, list for he's the, got the stutter. Yeah. Yep, he's got the stutter and and just the excitement that you get when he gets to write and the characters all yeah. get excited. Like, you feel that. And you get to see the, the, the song play out and it's exactly. the reward. So it's a really good tension release yeah. moment because you actually feel triumphant in that moment. Well, after all the arguing and bickering between the bands, the first time you hear any music just playing, mm. played since the very beginning scene. Yeah. So you're right. It is sort of a reward in a way. Yeah. And we're proud of the kid and we're proud of... Yeah, it's... That's a great moment. No worries. Well, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is currently out on Netflix. And, uh, yeah, you should absolutely go check it out. It's a great movie um, and something that is probably going to get a bit of a wars buzz. So, for sure. I'm rooting for him, for Chadwick. Speaking of streaming platforms, Jake, what is new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? So, Netflix this week, we see Outside the Wire, uh, which sees a drone pilot in the near future find himself paired up with a top-secret android officer on a mission to stop a nuclear attack. Sounds pretty intense, Zeke. That does sound very intense. My goodness. Uh, speaking of Marvel, the first two episodes of Marvel's WandaVision 
comes to Disney Plus this week. It sees Wanda and Vision living idealized suburban lives in multiple realities that explore television through the decades. And this is their first official Phase 4 release. There we go. So that's huge. Uh, in terms of classics, you've got the 25th anniversary of Fargo, which is playing at Luna this Thursday, the 14th. Into the Wild, your favorite, Zeke, this Friday at Camelot Outdoor. Hmm. And maybe less your favorite, David Lynch's A Razor Head this Sunday, the 17th. No worries. So, yeah. And there's a couple of new films in cinemas. Uh, I just want to say that we talked about Ammonite a bit already. That's finally getting its wide release at Hoyt and Luna, so it's much easier to watch that film now if you want to catch it. Uh, we're not huge on it, but, yeah, it's up to you. Uh, the Dig, which sees Kerry Mulligan, Ralph Fiennes, and Lily James as an excavator and his team, as an excavator and his team discover a wooden ship from the Dark Ages while digging up a burial ground on a woman's estate. Shadow in the Clouds sees Chloe Grace Moretz as a female Bobble 2 pilot traveling with top-secret documents on a B-17 before encountering an evil presence on board. And this trailer looks whack. Have you seen it? Yeah. <laughs> the physics, Don't man. know how to describe it, but physics. not even going to touch that one with a 10-foot pole, to be honest. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. And finally, very highly controversial film, Sia directs Music which sees a newly sober girl become the sole guardian of her autistic half-sister and finding inspiration in music and dance. And uh, people are hating this film. <laughs> right. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show, but Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, we're watching Nomadland. You are one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. I and they sometimes call you... Nomads. My mom said that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. My husband worked at the USG mine in Empire. I was a substitute teacher. It is a tough time right now. You may want to consider early retirement. I need work. I like work. Welcome to Badland Spa. What the nomads are doing is not that different than what the pioneers did. Hey, Fern! Gotta make the hole bigger. <laughs> I think Fern's part of an American tradition. Oh, he's gonna come right through the glass. My dad used to say, what's remembered lives. I maybe spent too much of my life just remembering. A woman in her 60s embarks on a journey through the western United States after losing everything in the Great Succession, living as a van-dwelling modern-day nomad. Well, Zeke, uh, we've both seen this film. We have. And uh, it's an excellent film. We mentioned it in our awards season earlier today. And uh, oh, So this is our latest director's corner. It's Chloe Zhao. Yeah, who uh, she's a very interesting director. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to catching um, a couple of her other films. This is her, I believe, third feature film. Mm. You mentioned The Writers on Netflix now? It just got added to Netflix, so I'll be giving that a watch during the week, see if I can kind of work out um, sort of her style, her consistent style. Yeah, for um, sure. does tie into our Marvel conversation because she's directing The Eternals. Yeah, and I think we're going to be talking a bit about how she worked on those two films simultaneously next week on the show. Yeah. And uh, we've got something a little special coming next week. No, no, not, we don't want to promise too much just yet. It's still in the works, uh, but we may have a couple of guests coming on 
next week to talk about a film that they may have uh, directed and produced themselves. So no a little teaser for you. Very there. exciting. But mm. until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Nomadland. Land.